0: Smith-Hilmer and welcome back to the Final Girl on Sixth Avenue podcast. I am Sixth Avenue's very own Final Girl and your host, Carolyn Smith-Hilmer. So this week, I'm really excited because I am going to be discussing a movie that has greatly impacted me. I would venture to say that it greatly impacts everyone that watches it. This movie is certainly not for the faint of heart, I am dedicating this episode to one of my very best friends in the entire universe, Madeline Leverett from Connecticut. So Madeline, if you and Riley um, are able to tune into this one together, I am dedicating this one to you. So this week, we're going to be talking about the house that Jack built. This is written and directed by Lars von Trier. Okay. Right out of the gate. Let's just get everything about Lars von Trier out of the way. Uh, did he publicly sympathize with Hitler at Cannes Film Festival? Yes, he did that. Um, Matt Dillon is the star of this film. Did Matt Dillon take that into account before he decided to work with Lars von Trier? Yes. Is Lars von Trier pretentious? That is your opinion. I am not going to tell you either way. I will tell you that a lot of people do think that the answer to that question is Yes. Um fun little tidbit about this movie because so he did go to Cannes Film Festival has been there many times openly admitted on stage that he could see where Hitler was like coming from basically he was like well at the end of the day like Hitler's just a guy blah 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 okay weird just that's just weird in itself um but this movie premiered at Cannes Film Festival in 2018 And reportedly more than a hundred audience members walked out during the premiere. They just left. They couldn't take it. They wanted to leave. And there was actually a six minute standing ovation from the people that stayed. So I don't know, I guess Lars von Trier can read the room and if uh, he was going to make a mistake and try to fix it, he was going to come back with something even bigger and better. So This is definitely my favorite Lars von Trier movie. If we want to talk about runtime, this is a very long movie. This is a two hour and 32 minute movie. This will be a two part episode. This will be the first two part episode. I was able to watch this on AMC plus, um, Consulting our Bible Hearer IMDb, the story follows Jack, a highly intelligent serial killer over the course of 12 years, and depicts the murders that really develop his inner madman. Star of the show is Matt Dillon, followed by Bruno Gaines and Uma Thurman, to note, just the overview of the tops. And I think we should just jump right in. Like I said, this is going to be a long one. This is definitely going to be a two-parter. I think we should just waste absolutely no time. I will tell you that next week there will not be an episode since it is a holiday. So the second part of this will be released the week after that. So let's jump right into the house that Jack built. We open with some sounds of splashing water where Jack and Verge, who kind of go back and forth as narrators, um, they're, they're talking to each other. They're talking about what the rules are for their journey together, and the screen is completely black. Verge tells Jack that he doesn't believe Jack will tell him anything he hasn't heard before, and we cut to our title screen. Jack explains that he wants to tell Verge about five randomly selected incidents throughout a 12-year period. Incident number one. Jack is driving in his red van when he pulls over to talk to a woman on the side of the road. This woman is Uma Thurman. Um, I literally worship Uma Thurman. It was really weird to see her in this role. He pulls over to talk to Uma Thurman's character. She doesn't have a name as far as I can tell. And she explains to Jack that her tire jack broke and she cannot fix her car without it. So she asks him for a jack. And she keeps saying the word jack like over and over again. Like, I need a jack. What am I supposed to do without a jack? Can you fix my jack? Do you know where I can get a jack? Um, it's a very, like, odd, meta, black comedy-type moment in the movie, and it's very early on, but it sets the, it sets the tone, um, I think. So he explains that she, he doesn't have one, like, he doesn't have anything to give her, and he offers to um, take her to a man named Sonny, who's a blacksmith in town, to repair the jack for her so she can take care of the car herself. When she gets in the van with Jack, she keeps looking at Jack and is sure to let him know that her getting in the car with him was a mistake. She says that she may as well have been in the car with a serial killer because of the van and just because of the way he looks. And that if he really were a serial killer, he definitely could have killed her already, though. So she lets him know that he could just bury her body up in the woods and to make sure to dig six feet down so the foxes can't dig up her body. And she just won't let it go. She won't drop it. It keeps going on and on and on. And, again, very weird character for her. So, on their way back, they take the Jack to Sonny the blacksmith. Sonny the blacksmith fixes it for her. They get back in the car. They go back to her car. And on the way back, she makes sure to tell Jack that she made a big mistake again, letting Sonny see them together because she will be the last person that Sonny saw, like, with Jack. So, you know, if anything were to happen to her there was a third person who saw them together after Jack drives all the way back to the car the Jack breaks again so the woman asks Jack if she's able to be taken back to see Sonny one more time and he tells her that he was actually just thinking about leaving her there and that there will absolutely be another serial killer passing by that would be more than happy to help her but she's persistent and he's so offended by the way that she's talking with him in the car that he Just takes the tire jack from her after she says he's too much of a pussy to kill anyone and just bashes her face in with it. So yeah, this is all in the first um, like nine minutes. So this, this tone for this movie is set very early on if you're into that sort of thing. Verge tells Jack that he's not impressed while they discuss Glenn Gould, a piano player that represents art as a whole, according to Jack. Jack then goes into a very deep discussion regarding the construction of churches and the materials that are used and how the materials do all the work in architecture and art. Verge tells Jack that this is a very lame and convenient excuse for murder, but that he is to assume that the jack just picked itself up off of the floor of the van and smashed into the woman's face all on its own. Verge tells Jack that no matter, that type of discussion only matters if Jack is an engineer anyway conveniently jack actually is an engineer influenced into this career path by his mother due to the role's financial stability but that his dream was to actually become an architect before the incident with the woman in the tire jack he had purchased a plot of land to build his own house on verge tells jack that he is just the walking embodiment of ocd and that he could never actually leave a room without it being perfect This poses a problem for Jack's walk-in freezer on Prospect Avenue, where he stores the woman in a fuckload of frozen pizzas that he bought from the freezer's prior owner. He never got around to selling them. He says he ate one shitty pizza and never ate any of the other ones and that they just sit there. Jack also makes sure to point out that there is another door within this giant walk-in freezer that he's never managed to be able to open. Verge ridicules Jack as being a neurotic with strange compulsions. Verge asks about the police, but Jack says that luckily they never came around. He shows how he hid the woman's car and that you could still kind of see it from the road. He parked it in the middle of a state line that was basically a no man's land for the cops with regard to the jurisdiction. So no one ever searched it out of fear that they would be in trouble for searching for things outside of their jurisdiction. Incident number two. Jack follows a woman walking down the road into her home while he's in his van. He gets out and goes up to her door and tells her that he is the police. He tells her that she has been shopping at Carlson's supermarket after seeing the grocery bag prominently displayed behind her through the screen door. She's talking to him through the door. Um, she won't open it, so it's just her and the screen. That's, that's all that's like dividing the two of them. He asks if he can come inside after explaining that he is just looking to prevent crimes in the area towards businesses like the supermarket. She asks for his police badge, which he explains he doesn't have because it is at the silversmith being polished and there's being some like additions done to it because he got a promotion and so there's going to be some citations on it. He tells her that he can't tell her what position he holds in the police department because it is confidential. He attempts to open the door, and she says, not without a badge, you're not coming in. This woman's name is Claire, by the way. He claps, and he acts like he's just demonstrated like a lesson to her, basically, about what not to do when a stranger without identification tries to enter your home. He asks Claire if he can ask her when exactly she lost her husband after seeing, again, prominently displayed behind her in the doorway her husband's certificate from the police department. So he's like, Hey, when did you lose your husband? Exactly? How long has it been? She explains it was just over six months ago. And he tells her that he's actually an insurance agent that wants to call the police headquarters, like the connections he has there for some reason to try and get her double on her pension. Glenn, the neighbor, drives by and honks and waves at Claire and they address each other, exchange hi's while he's driving. And Jack finally gets Claire to let him inside under the pretense that he can double her pension. Jack tells her that it is so humiliating to stand outside day in and day out every day trying to sell insurance with this whole stupid bit about how, you know, he's... He's a police officer, and then he's not, and he just wants to sell insurance and blah, blah, blah. And he basically just tells her that the whole thing is just plain humiliating. So she kind of feels bad at this point, and she's looking at him seriously. Like, I don't, I can't even explain the expression on her face. She is so mortified and confused by what she is seeing in him. So basically, she's just trying anything to get him to calm down, and she's like, okay, um, I'm really sorry. Do you want a cup of tea? And he does say no, but she turns to go to the kitchen anyway. And when she turns to walk into the kitchen, Jack comes up behind her and grabs her by the throat. He tackles her to the floor. She manages to get back up and he does the same thing again. And this time is nearly successful in his kill via strangulation of Claire. She starts to make these like gurgling sounds, and he apologizes to her and cries over her. And he's like, I'm so sorry. What can I do? How can I help you? As if she would even want his help to begin with at this point. It's not, not conclusive. Um, but she can't really talk, obviously. So she manages to utter that she can't speak. She basically just says, "Like can't talk. And he goes and gets his raincoat, American Psycho style with the collar and everything and gives her some chamomile tea again no idea how this chamomile tea is supposed to help her he eventually gets fed up with the noises and like the gurgling sound that she's making and it's just not stopping and obviously the tea that he gave her she can't swallow so it literally doesn't matter uh so he strangles her again Okay, that, like, he's, just, he's not going to let it go. He wants to strangle her. He's going to strangle her again. Just to make sure that she's dead, though, he takes a knife from his sock and stabs her in the chest. He takes her body and positions it in a chair in the living room to photograph her, and then Jack backs up his van to the house and moves Claire's body to the back of it. Her body is thumping against the stairs while he's dragging her, and it's loud, and it makes him nervous, and the lights are on. And Jack has OCD. So because Jack has OCD, he must meticulously clean her house before he can leave. He scrubs the floors on his hands and knees with a sponge and puts everything back where he found it. He goes back to the car. Before he can drive away, though, he closes his eyes and imagines that he did not clean well enough, missing spots of blood under the rug and under the floor lamp. Verge taunts Jack at how unfortunate it would be to be a murderer with OCD and cleaning compulsions nonetheless. Side note, this might be the best depiction of this phenomenon I've ever seen. Jack knows that he cleaned everywhere, but his brain will not allow him to believe that he did, so he has to go back inside the house to check again because he can't trust or believe his own brain. Been there, been there too many times to count, obviously not with murder, but boy, if I could tell you how many times I've done this in my daily life, literally every single day for as far as I can remember, um, I would be a millionaire. Of course, Jack goes back inside. He lifts up the rug and the lamp, finds nothing but cleans the floor again. He also makes sure to straighten up the photos on her walls. He goes back to the car. He envisions this time that there are blood splatters like, behind the photo that he touched i mean it was hanging on the wall so you know there's not blood there but that's where he thinks it is so this intrusive thought not leaving he has to go inside he goes back in and he discovers that there's nothing behind the photo but goes ahead and cleans the floor again and the wall inside the home he hears sirens so he runs back to his van and gets in the driver's seat he turns on the car again has another vision that one of the chair legs in the living room has blood under it. He can't help himself, he has to go back inside again. He goes back to look, of course, there's nothing. He runs back out to the van again, jumps in the driver's seat, and the sirens stop as the police officer parks on the road. The cop is still far enough away for Jack to have time to move Claire's body out of the trunk and behind her house. So Jack jumps back into the car, attempts to hide, The police officer approaches his window, asks him to get out, gives Jack a pat down, and asks if he can look in the back of the van. Jack tells the police officer that he would be a bad guy if he said no. So he opens up the van trunk, lets the officer look around. The officer doesn't find anything, not even a speck of blood, and apologizes. He tells Jack that there has been a breaking and entering situation down the street and that he just wanted to check and make sure. So Jack tells the police that there might actually be a bigger problem at hand because Claire has gone missing. He tells the police officer that he and Claire's husband used to be friends and that they both collect railroad publications. And he had just stopped by to ask Claire if there were any publications he could have of this thing. I don't even know what it is called tracks. He says that Claire went into the house to look for some and never came back out and that it was obviously better for her to be safe than sorry when a self-proclaimed weirdo shows up looking for railroad publications of tracks. The officer is looking at Jack the same exact way that Claire looked at him with just pure horror, disgust, confusion, the whole nine. I just... Really, really confused by the whole thing. So the officer asks Jack to stay where he is and knocks on the door. After waiting for a little while, Jack tells the cop that maybe the door is actually open. The police officer simply opens the door. He announces himself as Ed and knows Claire by name. Jack follows the officer into the house and proceeds to check all the spots that he imagined... He left blood behind one last time. He tells the police officer that he feels like the house needs to be thoroughly searched, especially the living room, where Jack claims he heard a scuffle break out. The cop tells Jack to leave and looks out the window to make sure that he does. Jack ties Claire's body to a rope and ties the rope to the back of the van and pulls her body down the street. He is creating a trail of blood down the street directly to his freezer on Prospect Avenue. Verge criticizes how dumb the police are, and Jack explains that just when he created his trail, a great rain came and washed it all away. Verge tells Jack that he's a psychopath and that it's weird that he accepts that. Jack explains that he has always gone to great lengths to face and fake normal emotions and empathy and demonstrates his practices in the mirror where he has photos of people showing different emotions posted on his wall. He then tells Verge that he used to run through the reeds as a kid in the field when playing hide-and-seek and rather than picking one singular place to hide he would run in a panic until he would eventually stop. The broken reeds would lead a path directly to him but no one ever bothered to find him. He was always looking to leave a trail for people to find him but no one ever bothered. He reminisces about the men from the village that used to cut the meadow with their scythes and how he loved the way it sounded and how he loved how uniform they were. During one of these memories of the men with the scythes, he catches a duck in a pond and cuts off its foot and throws it back. In the freezer. Jack throws around his pizza boxes in anger before going to another woman's apartment and strangling her for practice. He carries her body down to the car and takes her to the freezer. He says that after several murders, he felt his OCD diminish. I didn't know it could just go away, and I didn't know it would go away that fast, so... Note for all of you out there suffering from OCD. He becomes obsessed with the photos of his victims that he has developed and dissatisfied with the way that they're turning out. So he piles up um, Claire and the woman that he strangled and takes them back to the strangled woman's apartment. So not Claire's apartment, but the victim right after that. He wants to have more photographs taken, and on his way back to the apartment, he runs over a woman on the street as she's walking. She's literally just walking in the street. She's doing everything right, like she's walking in the direction of traffic with a flashlight, everything. Um, He turns around, pulls a UE, and just completely demolishes her in a very sad way. He says the urge struck him like lightning and he couldn't resist, and discusses how dangerous it is to be taking a body back to the scene of the murder along with a fresh, hemorrhaging body. This scene is unlike any other. It's This woman's apartment is kind of similar to a Motel 6 or, like, a Super 8. All the doors to enter the units are on the outside, um, and they're all accessible from, like literally the outside from like the street. Um, There are stairs that lead up to them that are on the outsides of the buildings. Everyone that lives in this building has their windows open and their lights on. And Jack is carrying these bodies from the van up to the second floor around all these windows across all these people. Nobody seems to notice. Nobody cares. So he kind of starts to feel invincible that like, he's literally doing this in like plain sight and no one is paying any attention. So he talks about how he has the freshly hemorrhaging body, but he also talks about how he has a body that's frozen in a very bizarre position. And it's kind of like, if you were pretending to be a puppy, like if you were to like put your arms close to your sides, bend at the elbow, flop your wrists forward, Seriously, like that's how this woman kind of looks like she's it's a very bizarre position. So he's carrying her and like obviously he can't carry her very well. Okay, so he's back at the apartment. He tells Virgil about the lamb and the tiger poem by Blake and he explains that sometimes the best way to hide is not to hide at all and carries the bodies to the apartment without hesitation to take the pictures that he so desperately wants. So Jack is pleased with the new photos and signs them as Mr. Sophistication, to which Verge exclaims that his narcissism knows no bounds. Jack sends these photos to a local newspaper. He goes on to tell Virgil about when he was 10 years old and discovered the negatives of photographs and how they have a certain demonic light to them. Verge asks if he wants to repent And Jack tells him that he will repent nothing, no matter how long they have to walk. He explains to Verge his emotions while using the analogy of walking along a sidewalk lit by lampposts, where the shadow in front is his pleasure and the shadow in the back is his pain. When the pain shadow gets too big and his pleasure shadow gets too small, he will kill again because the pain is too much to bear. So think of it like this. You're walking along a path. We've all seen these paths in like parks or like even in public or what have you. I mean, I live in New York. There's streetlights everywhere, depending on what neighborhood you're in anyway. I mean, where I live, you don't need them. Um, Or even just like a suburb. Okay. When Jack is standing directly in front of the lamppost, this is when he says that he is the same time committing the act of murder. When he starts to walk from that lamppost to the next, at first, his front shadow is much bigger than the shadow behind him. So having freshly killed someone, his pleasure shadow in the front is very big and his pain shadow in the back is very small. As he approaches the next lamppost, his pleasure shadow gets smaller because he's approaching the light and his pain shadow gets bigger. And when the pain is too much to bear, that is when he will kill again, which would be at the next lamppost. That's how he explains this. Verge tells him literally you can use that example for any type of addiction of any kind at all, like you're not special for coming up with this. Like Verge, he humbles Jack in pretty much every way possible or he tries to. So He goes on to tell Verge that family, even though Verge tauntingly points out that Jack doesn't have one, was actually the inspiration for his greatest work of art. On to incident number three, which I'm going to go ahead and just say is the absolute worst one. At this point, Jack has not done anything to um, children that we know about. So, they're super content warning here for violence against children. In incident number three, Jack brings his current girlfriend and her two sons, Grumpy and George, out to... They're not going to be hunting that day, he says, but it's basically a giant blind. Like a... Maybe a duck blind. I mean, it's a huge. Um, more than anything, it's just like a platform that you climb up and and used to sight and kill whatever you're hunting. So Grumpy tells his mom that he never wanted to come all the way out here anyway, and doesn't want to be there. And Jack takes this opportunity to show George, the other son, all the weapons that they have today. George tells Jack that he would be proud if he had killed large animals through hunting, but Jack tells him that he isn't proud at all, actually. It's nothing to be proud of. And he explains under what circumstances you would use a rifle versus a shotgun and tells George that they are not there to hunt today. He explains to George the concept of culling with regard to crows and touches on the fact that there is a slight detail about it that resembles an ethnic cleansing, which is essentially like culling is is pretty much the act of how Jack describes it. Choosing what type of animals you want to allow to like be alive. So it's a sort of like population control. It's basically selective slaughter. Like if I wanted less crows, I would go out and only hunt crows. Because crows aren't really natural prey for anything else. But by eliminating the population of crows... I am taking away a potential food source from something else. And taking that away from whatever else would result in that species not surviving. So he goes on his high horse about different ritualistic hunting practices, including trophies, which if you have ever been hunting or grew up in Texas, you know exactly what a trophy is. Um, It's when you keep your game that you've hunted and just put it on display. So he takes George up to the top of this, like, tower blind situation that he has set up to shoot some paper targets that he has placed. And after they shoot a few rounds, he explains where the animals should be shot to die quickly and the purpose of a blood or schweiss dog. He explains that... Basically, if you're gonna shoot something and you want it to be dead fast, you need to shoot it in the chest, lung, heart area. Um, If you shoot something in the leg, it can still run pretty far. It still has the potential to leave. So that's why you would have a Schweiss dog because this dog smells and tracks blood and can go after this so you can shoot it again so you can actually kill it and put it out of its misery. So he explains to Verge that if you encounter a group of animals, you always want to shoot the smallest fawn first, and then the medium fawn, and then the mother, when hunting due to like their different survival statistics. Then we see his girlfriend and her two sons running and hiding for their lives. Jack did not come to hunt animals. He came to hunt them. As they run across the field... Jack manages to shoot both George and Grumpy right in front of their mom. He then forces her to have a picnic with the corpses of her two dead sons. He makes the joke that George doesn't look very hungry and asks her to feed his corpse a piece of pie. His body is limp and propped up on some sticks jack proclaims that today was an excellent day and asks his girlfriend what her favorite number is in her shocked state she is able to utter that her favorite number is 12. he tells her to go on ahead and that he'll take care of the kids he climbs up the ladder to his blind and starts to count to 12. she's so stunned that she just walks through the field and accepts the fact that she's going to be shot Jack shoots her. That's how he finds the blood. Um, But when he goes to retrieve her body, he only finds the blood and no body. Verge, obviously listening very intently, proudly says, Schweiss. Jack follows the trail of blood until he finds her in a ditch, sobbing face down. He shoots her in the back. He proudly displays his trophies of like, Fifty crows, the two boys and their mom. Um, again, he was just criticizing the fact that people do this, uh, but he did it, so I guess it's okay when he does it, but it's not okay when other people do it. I'm not, not really one hundred percent sure. You're gonna have to ask him. I'm not gonna talk to him, so just let me know. But anyway verge has had enough of this story he tells jack he's done with the manipulation and that children are the most sensitive of all the subjects and that none of this has anything to do with art and verge is just he's just fucking sick of it he doesn't want to talk about it so jack tells verge that he's also sensitive because he can't sleep on a sheet that has even one single wrinkle on it and somehow that is comparable to the dead kids He then goes on to say that first there is an eclipse. Then there is a volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helens, which he could see from his lot. And Verge tells Jack that the hunt is symbolic of love. So he's confused why Jack isn't understanding that this whole thing could have been out of love. So like he has a romantic partner and he decides to ruin the whole entire thing. Jack then discusses his house that he's building and decides that cinder blocks are the wrong material and has his progress demolished. Jack tells Verge that the Iceman used to inhale his last breath of his victims, and Verge is literally, he's just, he's fed up. He's done. He doesn't want to talk about it. He's like, You're fucking crazy. You're insane. At home, though, Jack proudly hangs up the newspaper clippings of his photos that he sent to the police in the newspaper on his wall around his mirror. He then tells Verge that he doesn't feel so well, and that there's a sour taste in his mouth, which Verge jokes that he could show Jack the way to the nearest whiskey bar, but it is actually the acid that he is tasting at the level they are walking at, and that he will have to get used to it. Jack left Grumpy's body out in a position where rigor mortis set in but was not yet frozen because he wanted to practice the art of taxidermy. He goes on to talk to Verge about how very like, well-established and good taxidermists can position things and make things look as if they are still alive and look very realistic. And the reason that Jack did not want to freeze Grumpy's body is because he wanted to practice taxidermy by putting a smile permanently on Grumpy's face using some wires that he found and molded into the shape of a smile. So now Grumpy is permanently smiling and he's in a standing position with his hand looking like he's waving. Thank God that's over. Okay. Incident number four. Jack is seen using crutches to approach his new girlfriend's apartment to look helpless verge confirms that he's doing this for the sole purpose of looking helpless and not because he actually needs them a cop leaves a citation on his parked van his girlfriend who he calls simple is crying when he arrives she says she cannot talk to him because she hates the way that he looks at her Jack tells Verge that he had really strong feelings for her, much stronger than any psychopath should be able to have. So he goes and grabs a corded telephone for her and sets it on the coffee table. He grabs another phone connected to the same line and sits in another room so he can talk to her. She says she feels like he's trying to leave her and he promises time and time again that he will not, makes jokes with her and convinces her to have a drink and listen to records with him. He calls her simple, but her name is actually Jacqueline. She hates that he calls her that. And he's like, oh, well, you have great tits. Which I guess is supposed to make her feel better about the fact that he's calling her stupid every time he interacts with her. He asks her if she knows what the difference is between lions and lambs and engineers and architects and her feelings are obviously hurt she gets the answer to the question about the architect versus the engineer wrong um i didn't really ever i guess take into consideration that there was that big of a difference and sounds pretty nuanced to me but there apparently is a very wrong answer to this question, and she gets it wrong. So Jack is upset, and her feelings are hurt, and she basically is just like, can we just talk about something else? Maybe, like, we can talk about what you do. And Jack says that he kills, that he's a serial killer, and she thinks he's joking, so she's like, Haha, you're weird, LOL. He says he may be weird, but he has killed 61 people. She says that last time he said 60... So he takes this opportunity to berate her on how numbers can change, and 60 can be 61 in an hour or so. He asks her to grab him a magic marker, either red or black, and he pulls down her shirt to outline her breasts. Kind of like the markings you would do to prep someone for surgery, like the incisions. She says again that he's fucking weird And runs downstairs to talk to the cop that's outside She tells him that her friend is fucking weird And has killed 60 people The cop is like Yo have you been drinking And she says yes Which I'm like dude you don't you No no you, you can't admit to that That's ridiculous So she says yeah she's been drinking And the cop is like well I would stop if I were you Jack comes downstairs to tell the cop that everything that Simple said is true and then collapses on the sidewalk. The cop tells them both to stop drinking and drives off. Jack cries and tells her that he wants to make it up to her and asks her for her forgiveness. Upstairs in her apartment, Jack sleeps on the couch and Simple tries to call a friend to get some pills for Jack. She's like, I know a guy who can bring you good pills. You need some pills, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what, like, she, I don't know what he wants to take pills for. Like, I don't know why she wants to give them to him. Also, whenever he came down to talk to the cop, he wasn't using his crutches, by the way, but she didn't catch that until, well, she hasn't caught that yet. Um, so she picks up the phone. She tries to talk to, like, call someone, okay? And the phone line has been cut. Like, she can't hear a dial tone. She keeps, like, pressing the thing. It's not working. She realizes that the wire has been cut, and scared, she walks to the door and tries to unlock her deadbolt. As soon as she touches it, Jack wakes up and is standing right behind her. He asks her if she was leaving, and she says that she was going to go get some pills for him. She asks where her keys are, and Jack tells her that he isn't going to take pills from a random person anyway, and that he's actually going to hang on to the keys. Simple notices that he can walk without a crutch at this point. She asks him if he is Mr. Sophistication. He tells her that if she likes to scream, he thinks that she should start. So she does, and so does Jack. He screams for help. She screams in terror. No one comes. He teases her that none of her neighbors are going to help her, and she opens the window to scream outside. He tells her that she can scream from now until Christmas Eve, but she will continue to get no answer. He shoves something in her mouth. I don't see what it is. It's probably a piece of fabric. He then ties this into her mouth, securing it with phone wires. He ties her arms up with phone wires. And finally says, simple, sorry, Jacqueline. Like he corrects himself as if now all of a sudden he has this newfound respect for her. And he says, we're going to pick a knife. So he has three knives. They all look like they hurt equally as bad. She shakes her head no for the first two. He grabs her head and shakes her head yes physically for the last one because that's what he's going to use. He takes off her top and with the third knife tells her that something has been bothering Mr. Sophistication for quite some time. He asks her why it is always the man's fault, no matter what. Even if he never harmed a single kitten, Jack says if you are born a male, then you are also born guilty, and that men are always criminals, while women are always victims. This obviously bothers him a lot, because he starts to cut off her breasts. Downstairs outside, he notices the cop scolding some teenagers for trespassing, So he takes one of Simple's breasts and puts it on the cop's windshield. He tells Verge about, obviously, all of this. And Verge tells Jack that he must feel superior to women because he never talks about the men that he killed. He only talks about the women that he killed. Jack goes on to explain that he has definitely killed men. And Verge's like, yeah, but you're not talking to me about the men you killed. You're only talking to me about the women that you killed. So obviously you don't really care to talk about the men because those don't seem as like great victories to you. Jack then goes on to explain that some of the bodies seem to putrefy before he can get them into the freezer and that he cannot comment on whether or not the states of putrefaction are inherently good or evil. And that good and evil can only be evaluated when humans are living. But dead humans are merely matter, which is what all living things are made from. Such is art. Okay, so that is where we're going to stop today. This is right before incident number five, the fifth and final. This movie's very long. Like I said, this is a two and a half hour movie. We're splitting this up because there's seriously a whole hour of this movie still left. So... Um, I would like to tell you that like, it gets better. It really, really doesn't get any better from here. I would be 100% lying to you if I said that. So please join me on September 13th. That will be part two. Um, of course I'm giving you these episodes on Tuesdays. So definitely September 13th will be the next time we have one that's released. Um, I hope you all enjoy your Labor Day weekend. I hope you all take some time to relax, rejuvenate, regenerate, spend some time with friends, family, spend some time by yourself, spend some time doing whatever the fuck you want, because holidays are few and far between. So I hope you all take some time to enjoy your day off. Please don't forget to tell everybody that you think would be interested in this podcast about it. Um, You can find me at final girl on six that's the number six on instagram you can also email me at final girl on six the number six at gmail.com if you have any questions comments concerns please continue to subscribe follow like leave review rate five stars i appreciate all of you thank you so much and until next time i am carolyn smith hilmer Sixth avenues very own final girl thanks so much have a good weekend